Over the last several years, our culture has experienced a reckoning of sorts with sin. Starting with Harvey Weinstein, there have been a series of high-profile accusations of sexual misconduct. Countless people have testified to allegations of abuse. As some have been charged, others have lost their jobs, but many have just ignored or denied the allegations and tried to move on. Dan Harmon might have been one of them. Harmon was the creator and star of the NBC sitcom Community. On the last day of 2017, he said, it had been a year during which men had behaved remarkably badly, and he expressed his hope that 2018 would be better. He seemed to express regret, but in a vague, general way. One of his former writers, Megan Gantz, tweeted back, Care to be more specific? Redemption follows allocution. To her, a generic statement of regret and a general hope for a better year wasn't good enough. He responded by confessing how he had treated her like garbage and shown disrespect to women in general. This was still closer to the truth, but too vague to be meaningful to Gantz. Pressed to honestly confront his past, he went on to make a seven-minute confession of his sins against her in his weekly podcast. She responded by calling it a masterclass in how to apologize, and she said, he's not rationalizing or justifying or making excuses. He doesn't just vaguely acknowledge some general wrongdoing in the past. He gives a full account. She not only commended him, she publicly forgave him. And it was a victory for the Me Too movement. But it was also an example of how a person can come clean with their sin and also how resistant we can be to do so. The Me Too movement has been a partial reckoning with sexual sin in society today. But the Bible describes a much greater reckoning when we will face God's judgment. For some reason, most people assume God will treat sin differently than Megan Gantz. They think that he'll just overlook our sin or let us justify it. But he's far too concerned about justice to allow that. Today's passage looks at how we can come clean with God, how we can know forgiveness and reconciliation with God the way that Dan Harmon experienced with Megan Gantz. At this point, why don't you press pause, grab your Bible, and turn with me to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, a masquil of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Salah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. 
I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of God. Now, before we consider how to come clean with God, we need to see why it's so important. This psalm teaches us that if you cover your own sin, you'll buckle under the weight of it. Hiding what we've done is like stuffing moldy bread under the sofa. It doesn't solve the problem, it just creates another deeper one. If you cover your own sin, you'll buckle under the weight of it. Now, the introduction to this psalm is in verses 1 and 2, and there it repeats the word, blessed. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Those sound like things that a priest would say. You might expect that they were written by a preacher, but the header tells us that this is a masquille of David. It's a song composed by a king. We'd expect him to tell us how blessed it is to have a big palace or lots of money, or how blessed it is to fulfill all your professional ambitions. But he doesn't do that. He has everything that money, power, and status can get you. But he doesn't testify to the blessedness of any of those things. He doesn't point to the blessedness of family or good health either. He shows us there is no real blessedness without forgiveness from sin. Dan Harmon would probably tell us the same thing. If we struggle to believe that forgiveness is the key to real blessing, and we do, then it's probably because we struggle to understand what the problem of sin is. Today we want the freedom to define our own standards of right and wrong. But the Me Too movement has rightly challenged that. Just because it feels right, or you can get away with it, or because it's part of your culture, other people are doing it, doesn't mean that it's not sin. It doesn't mean that you won't be held to an account. Now, David uses several words in this psalm to define sin for us. The first word he uses in verse 1 is the word transgression. It's an act of rebellion against, against God. The word speaks of a rejection of God's authority over your life. It's when you tell the toddler to pick up your toys and they say, no. Then the next word later in the verse uh, to, to describe it is sin itself. Sin describes how we miss the target of God's will. James 4.17 puts it like this, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. What God does is take the commandments of the Bible as the standard and define sin as the wrong we do and the right that we don't do, whether in thought, word, or deed. This makes the problem of sin so much broader than we normally recognize. And the final word for sin in this, in this passage comes in verse 2, and it's the word iniquity. The word has a sense of being twisted, bent, or morally distorted. Have you ever had someone twist your words? And you're like, that's not what I meant at all. 
That's what iniquity does to God and his will for our lives. We bend and distort what God has said to make it fit, to make it fit what we want to do. It's important that we have this framework from the Bible, this framework for sin in our minds, because too often what we'll do is make decisions about right and wrong without any clear convictions or, or commitments to God's word. It's like playing guitar without anything to tune it to. We convince ourselves that it sounds fine, but in reality, it's flat. Now, David's first instinct with sin was the same as ours. He keeps it a secret. He pretends it's not there. In verse 3, he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. All, and, and then he talks about groaning all the day long. Sin weighs on him. He groans, he growls, he sighs. And he probably doesn't know why at first. It feels like his bones are wasting away because there's an ache and a soreness because of the tension inside. He can never fully relax. He's never fully at peace. Today he'd be told, try meditation or yoga. In verse 4 he says, my strength was, was dried up as by the heat of summer. The guilt wears away at him, it saps his energy. We'd probably encourage him to take some iron or vitamin B, but the weight of sin will not be so easily relieved. In verse 4 he says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Now for some of you that may not line up with your image of God. Our tendency can be to just see God as a nice helper. But if you're his child and you're ignoring sin in your life, if you're walking in denial and hiding what you're doing, he'll put pressure on you. His hand will be heavy on you. You'll feel the weight of it. It'll drain you. He confronts us and convicts us. He makes us long for the peace of a clear conscience. And that's because God cares for us too much to see us give our lives to what will destroy us. Now, some of you may be thinking, I've never felt that. I don't think of God that way at all. But if you've never felt God's heavy hand on you when you sin, then you really want to question where, where you stand with God. You want to ask whether you're one of the crowd that God warns of having a hard heart with no eyes to eyes to see or ears to hear. As Hebrews 12, 6 says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. You don't ever want to come to the point where you stop hearing the Lord's rebuke. Hear David's warning this morning. Hear the appeal of scripture. If you cover your own sin, you'll buckle under the weight of it. But also let David's words inspire you. Hear the encouragements of scripture. If Jesus covers your sin, he'll bear the weight of it. The good news of the Bible is that God has provided a remedy for our sin. There's relief from sin's burden. If Jesus covers your sin, he'll bear the weight of it. Now we saw that in verse 1 that David starts this psalm with that declaration of the blessed. But when he says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, the word for forgiven here literally means lifted. Similarly in verse 5 where he says, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He's literally saying, you lifted it from me. When he denied his sin and tried to hide it, 
It weighed him down. Sin sapped his strength and the, hand, the Lord's hand was heavy on him. But he wants people to know that there's nothing like having that burden of your sin lifted. There's a relief when God takes the weight off your shoulders. It makes me think of our men's canoe trip. We'll start one of our portages and I've, I've got my backpack in behind and the food barrel strapped on in front. And at first it feels kind of manageable. You think, I can do this. But the farther you walk into the forest, the more it seems to weigh. And when you realize that you've made a wrong turn, the burden of it just feels like unbearable. And then suddenly you come through a clearing and you see water and you can put your pack down. And it's this feeling of weightlessness. You momentarily feel like you're Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. That's what it's like when Jesus lifts the burden of your sins. But he doesn't just lift the burden. He covers it. In verse 1, David says, Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. It's interesting language because before, he was covering his own sins. Now, God covers them for him. God doesn't just leave him exposed. This is an idea that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they immediately felt naked and embarrassed. Their first instinct was to hide. They want to cover themselves. And so they sew fig leaves together as a covering. And we've been doing the same ever since. Has anyone ever thought, boy, they sure made a poor choice of leaf. Banana leaves would have provided a lot more cover, right? And the fig leaves would, would constantly be drying out and falling off. And I think that's the point. The ways that we devise to cover our sins are, are exhausting and ultimately ineffective. We try to cover our sins through our careers and our religion. We try to cover our sins through our families and our social media profiles. We overcompensate, but everyone sees through our fig leaves. We know that because we can see through other people's fig leaves. See, do you remember what God did in the garden? He showed Adam and Eve that he could provide a better covering for their sins. Genesis 3.21 says, God made garments of skin and clothed them. Now, the covering of their sins required the death of another, a substitute. But they would no longer feel exposed. David felt this in his heart when he said, Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. There's nothing like having your sin covered by Jesus. Now, there's also nothing like having God not hold your sin against you. In verse 2, David says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Have you ever written a test and it went really badly? And then afterwards, the teacher announced, We're not going to count that one. I think of times when I've gone golfing with my father-in-law and I've fired a ball off so far into the bush that there's no way we could possibly retrieve it. And he'd say to me, Paul, you can take a mulligan. Feels great when it doesn't count against you. David's saying, when God doesn't hold your sin against you, feels incredible. God actually has the authority to wipe our slate clean. And it's amazing. 
Carl Menninger was an acclaimed psychiatrist. You may be familiar with the name, but he wasn't a Christian. But he said this as, as he reflected on, on his practice. He said, if I could convince my patients that they were truly forgiven, 75% of them would never see me again. He saw in his practice what David experienced. There is no blessing without the forgiveness of sins. Now, most of you are probably with me so far. You agree that if you cover your own sin, you'll buckle under the weight of it. And you probably believe that if Jesus covers your sin, he'll bear the weight of it. And yet, maybe you still don't feel the amazing relief that David testifies to. And you're not sure that, that the blessedness that he's talking about is really yours. So let's listen to how he tells us how to get it. How do we receive this covering for our sin? How can we be relieved of the weight of sin on us? Now, the final lesson this psalm teaches us is that Jesus covers your sin when you confess it in a relationship of trust and obedience with God. Nothing in David's experience of God's grace is automatic. It comes in confession and it comes in relationship. Jesus covers your sin when you confess it in a relationship of trust and obedience with him. Now, the turning point in this psalm occurs in verse 5, that's where David says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Now, David did to God what Dan Harmon did to Megan Gantz. He came clean. He confessed his sins specifically and fully. He didn't rationalize, make excuses, or just give a vague account. He saw his sins from God's perspective, and he chose to stop hiding them. And it wasn't until he uncovered his sins before God that God covered them for him. In verse 2, when he talks about the blessing of the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, he adds, and in, who, in whose spirit there is no deceit. In other words, we experience the freedom of forgiveness when we stop playing games with God, stop trying to trick him. The blessing comes with our honest confession with nothing held back. And there's no such thing as just checking in with Jesus for forgiveness and ignoring his authority in the rest of our lives. Jesus' covering of our sin should move us to trust him. That's why he says in verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. The idea is that he's urging the kind of relationship where we don't see God just when it feels like we're drowning. He wants to have a greater place in our lives than that. In verse 10, David says, The steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Again, he's making the point that the blessing of forgiveness doesn't come when we just treat God like a forgiveness genie. It comes in a relationship of trust. It also comes in a relationship of obedience. That's why in verse 8, you have these promises of God's direction and leading. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. We love verses like this, right? 
We want to embroider it and put it in a frame, put it on the wall. But it's followed by verse 9 where it says, Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not, or it will not stay near you. If you've really experienced the blessing of Jesus' covering of your sins, you're going to move past the mule relationship with God. The mule is an animal known for its stubbornness. It doesn't turn unless you give it a good kick. Is that how it is with you and God? Is his word enough to redirect your steps? Or do you need a kick? I was reading this week of a man who cheated on his tax forms and he felt awful about it. The guilt just wouldn't go away. So he wrote a note to Revenue Canada and he came clean. He said, I cheated on my tax forms. I put the wrong numbers down. I've been feeling guilty and I can't sleep at night. I'm sending a check for $1,500. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. Now, that's how a mule relates to God, right? That's not what we're talking about. The amazing experience of having your sins covered by Jesus should move us to follow him. No more holding back. No more playing games. No more cutting corners. Now, right now, COVID-19 is putting extra pressure on everybody. And pressure can lead to temptation. Let this message be to you what Megan Gantz's tweet was to Dan Harmon. Let it force you to think about the condition of your heart. And if there is sin that you've been hiding, denying, come clean with God about it. Confess it to him with all of the details and none of the excuses. If it's a sin that you've confessed many times to God before and things haven't changed, then the next step is to confess it to another believer who can pray for you. If you have confessed the sin and turned from it, then release the burden. Stop trying to cover yourself with fig leaves. Put your trust in the Savior who died on the cross as a covering for your sins. Receive the forgiveness of the Savior who bore the burden of your sin so that the weight of it could be lifted from you. A Savior like that is worthy of our love. He's worthy of our trust. And he's worthy of our obedience. So let's give it to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that too often we're in the same position that Dan Harmon was. We want to avoid dealing with it. We want to deny the reality of it. But sin doesn't go away just because we push it off to the side. Help us, Father. Help us to recognize sin for what it is. Help us to look to Jesus Christ. To receive the forgiveness that he offered and made possible for us on the cross. But to do so, we need to acknowledge our sin before you. We need to come clean, to be specific, to hold nothing back. So help us to do that. Father, I pray for anyone hearing about your great forgiveness 
your great grace for perhaps the first time. Minister to them. Draw them to yourself. Help them to step into this incredible experience of your grace. And for the rest of us, Father, help us not to be like the mule. Help us to walk trusting you, following you, obeying you. For you're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our heart's loyalty. And so we glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in one sense, this has been a hard passage of Scripture. But God's intent for us is to experience the blessing of his forgiveness. Share this message of God's blessing with someone you care about. And as always, for more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless, and see you next time.